Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration, refugee, citizenship, border issues. Uh, I'm Steve Murins. I'm here with Diana Okanachoff, and we're here to quickly introduce today's podcast, uh, which is a record, which is a discussion about medical inadmissibly inadmissible medical inadmissibility to Canada that Deanna and uh, Aaron Roth, a lawyer at Peter Edelman's office, recorded a few months ago. And since that episode uh, in which Deanna and Aaron talked about issues with Canada's medical inadmissibility regime, um, the Canadian government has announced that there will be some changes coming up in the next few months. I believe it's June the 1st to Canada's medical inadmissibility regime. And uh, Deanna, do you know what do you want to talk about what those changes are? Sure. So uh, this came out of what was a fairly lengthy study uh, by the Standing Committee about, about the medical admissibility provisions that you'll hear Aaron and I discussing at some length in the, in the podcast that will follow. And essentially what came out of that was a recommendation that the provisions needed to be softened somewhat. Um, There were some very strong recommendations made, and as a result of all of that, um, on the 16th of April, an announcement was made that the provisions were going to be changed substantially, and in two main areas, they're going to change the provisions such that the, the cost threshold that we talk about throughout, which is at around um, $7,000 per year, um, we call it the excess demand threshold that we talk about throughout the podcast, um, that it's going to triple so that rather than the excess demand threshold being around $7,000, it will be closer to $20,000 per year um, in order to become inadmissible on medical grounds. So that's the first major change. Uh, The other major change that will be coming is that Um, when they're looking at whether or not somebody is medically inadmissible for excess demand, um, typically it's sort of like a basket of services that they look at, and they are including both um, health services and other social services, but they're going to be redefining what falls into that basket of services so that it will no longer include services for special education for social services, including vocational rehabilitation services and personal support services. So this will have a direct impact on um, medical admissibility findings against children who have developmental disabilities. So the provisions are going to be changed substantially for some. Um, Many still feel that it's not going far enough, that um, the discriminatory impacts will still be felt by many, but not as directly by some. So, um, uh, you know, big changes to the provisions. Um, we don't know exactly when these will come down. I think many people are saying that it will happen as soon as this summer, um, but we haven't actually seen any specific amendments to the rules, or we don't know exactly when those will come into force, but this is um, a space to watch. So I think without further ado, I will leave it to the discussion between Aaron and I, most of which is still relevant, except for some of these um, adjustments that we, um, that I just mentioned now. Alrighty, awesome. Hello 
this is the Borderlines podcast, the podcast that's dedicated to immigration and border-related issues. My name is Deanna Okanachoff, and I will be hosting the podcast today. And I am joined by Aaron Roth, who is an associate uh, with Edelman and Company here in Vancouver. And prior to joining Edelman and Company, she worked in Toronto for the Bellissimo Law Group. Uh, and in both of those positions, um, medical inadmissibility has been a significant focus of her practice, and particularly litigation around medical admissibility issues. So she is uh, joining me today, and we're going to talk about the issue of medical inadmissibility in the immigration context, and specifically a study that's currently ongoing with the Committee on uh, Immigration and Citizenship that is um, it's in process right now, so we'll talk about that a little bit. So welcome, Erin. Um, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me today. Oh, of course. So perhaps we can start off by just um, you telling uh, our audience a little bit about what the medical admissibility rules are in Canadian immigration legislation. Right now, when an applicant for permanent residence or even some levels of temporary residence apply to enter Canada, they have to undergo medical examinations. And certain individuals will be found to be medically inadmissible to Canada. For example, if they're a seen as a danger to the health of Canada, for example, if they have tuberculosis or syphilis, or if they're seen as a danger to the public. And in that case, the department has indicated certain sociopathic disorders could qualify. But the most common ground is whether found to be an excessive demand to health or social services in Canada. And so these would be individuals who would cost more than the average costing for publicly funded services, for example, at hospitals or even through special education in terms of social services, or who create an excessive demand by increasing wait lists for medically necessary services in Canada. That's helpful. Um, so, first of all, when you talk about um, permanent residents, all applicants for permanent residents require, and some temporary residents. Perhaps you can just drill down a little bit more into who actually requires a medical before they come to Canada. Well, in terms of temporary residents, it's going to be those people who would have the access to provincially funded uh, medical programs in Canada. So, this would count as workers and students. Temporary residents, as in visitors, would not qualify for this because they have no access to publicly funded medical services. In terms of permanent residents, there are two excluded groups that do not constitute medical admissibility regardless of their condition in in terms of excessive demand. And these would be people that have been found to be convention refugees, people that have been found to be protected persons in Canada, or members of the family class. And the family class would be when there is a Canadian citizen or permanent resident who's seeking to bring their spouse or dependent children to Canada. I think this is the this point about the family class is very confusing for some people because in those sorts of situations where it's a foreign national who's applying to join a Canadian citizen or a permanent resident, they are exempt. And the reason for the exemption is that they they're coming to join their Canadian family member or their Canadian permanent resident family member, and they are not required to, to pass the excess demand uh, test. Um, as I understand it, they are still required to show that they don't have a, 
um, that danger to the Canadian public component of the, the medical admissibility issue. That one still could be applied against them. It's just the excess demand component that is irrelevant. Is that correct? Got yes, that right? Yeah. yeah. And so, um, but the distinction here is that when somebody else is applying for permanent, like an entire family is applying for permanent residence, at that point, they would be subject to a medical. So that's, it's different when they're being sponsored by the Canadian than it is if they are applying as a family to come together. So even though there might be a principal applicant and their spouse or their children, they would all need to pass medical examination. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think the exemption comes from the fact that there's already a Canadian citizen or permanent residence involved when we're talking about the family class, but economic classes like skilled workers or even live-in caregivers, they simply don't benefit from that. Right. And it seems like the policy rationale is that Canadians and permanent residents are entitled to have their family members come to Canada in spite of a medical inadmissibility. So... In those situations, though there might be a cost to them coming, that that cost is outweighed by the policy benefit of allowing the Canadians to be with their family, their immediate family members, I'm guessing. That is what I would conclude as well. Yeah. And I don't think it's ever as explicitly stated as that. Yes. So just for a second to go back to the situation of temporary residents, um, as you said, visitors are not required to undergo medical examination um, and workers and students um, would uh, would be, but it's also the, the bit about how, depending on how much time they're intending to spend in Canada and what country they're coming from, because many temporary residents will be able to come and get two-year work permits and never go for a medical, even though they will be entitled to those provincial services. Yeah, there are exemptions even within the sort of finite statements I'm saying. It's yes. Often what the policy is meant to capture, and at least tries to capture in most cases, are those people who would get the benefit of the provincial health care plans. But even in that case, it's not absolute. Sure. I think the reason that that one um, challenges me is because on a temporary basis, there will be, I would say probably, and I'm not basing this on any scientific evidence, but I would imagine that the majority of temporary workers and students coming would not be medical requiring and they will be entitled to services and there's no check on what those expenses might be. So it's like Canada has sort of acknowledged that that might be something where there is a cost being incurred, but it's they haven't decided that that's something that they want to put their resources to try and recapture those costs. Yeah, I actually am working with a family right now who's actually falls into that criteria. And after years here um, establishing their lives here, developing a professional career, mm. they're now at the point of immigrating. And they're told now, after years in Canada, years of being what might be considered an excessive demand, yes. now they're not wanted. Now that they've given many years of their professional career and paid income taxes, for sure, have supported the system, have paid into provincial health care spending pockets. Yes. Now, after all of this... Yeah, this was a common one for me working with living caregivers mm -hmm. as well, where they've come, they've done it. And with caregivers, because they are working in a health occupation... Um, they will be required to do a medical because that's not an exempt group, even mm -hmm. though they're um, they're temporary foreign workers. But um, it's when they then try and bring their family to join them. They might have been here for eight years and um, 
you know, not have had any reason to know that there was going to be a medical admissibility issue when they had their permanent residence application assessed so far down the line. So it can be really, it can be really shocking for those people. And I think it's the same too with students who have come here and they've like invested in a Canadian education on the premise that they would be able to earn their way to permanent residence and then a, a medical issue comes up so late in the day. And I think that's one of the comments that was even proposed at the committee. It's that, can there be some way to screen people at an earlier time so they understand before going through a longer wait period yes. that this is going to be an issue? Yeah, because it goes to the question of, like, can people make informed choices about what they're doing in Canada and how they're making these investments of time and money um, without knowing what their their end goal, whether that end goal is realizable of being able to stay here permanently. No, that's definitely the case. And it's one of the things that, you know, the immigration department would say, well, in those cases, hopefully we can comply by having humanitarian type discretion to overcome admissibility in these case by case assessments. And just unfortunately, a lot of the times we don't see that discretion being exercised. Mm-hmm. Well, that's maybe a good segue. Um, perhaps you can talk about what does the process look like when somebody um, is facing a potential admissibility allegation? Well, the process in all cases would start, of course, by the person applying, let's say in this case, for immigration to Canada. Partway through the process, they'll be asked to do their medical exam. And wherever in the world they are, they have to go to a panel physician that's authorized by the Department of Immigration. And the panel physician then sends in the medical report to the immigration office. At that point in time, it could be that it's suggested they do a medical furtherance to some sort of an expert or to even provide reports from uh, specialist physicians or doctors that the family is already in contact with. All of these reports, including the furtherance, is given to what we call a medical officer. And this is an officer who is employed by the Immigration and Refugee Systems of Canada, the department, as I'll refer to it in the future. And that medical officer then looks at all of these medical reports, expert opinions, possibly report cards if it's from students who are said to have an intellectual disability, and puts together what's called a medical opinion. And this is an opinion as to the diagnosis that this individual has and the likely services that this individual could expect to require once they get to Canada and what the costing of those services would be. This material would all be then given to an immigration officer who would review it and send out what we call a procedural fairness letter to the family or individual involved, essentially saying, it has been found that your family member or yourself are inadmissible for this reason, and sending out the remainder of the medical officer's opinion in terms of what the likely services would be and the costs. And they ask then for the applicant to provide what we call a mitigation plan, or to even address whether or not the medical finding is accurate. Mm -hmm. And so in response to that, you could challenge the medical finding. Perhaps the person doesn't actually have intellectual disability. Or if they do, maybe it's not at the level that was found to be by the officer. Or they could say, for example, well, okay, my child has intellectual disability, but we're going to be sending that child to a private school and providing what we would call a mitigation plan for how they would mitigate or attenuate the costs that would be anticipated to fall to the provincial services. 
This entire plan goes back to the medical officer, who then, as we know from the Supreme Court and the Federal Court of Appeal decisions in Canada, has to look at both the medical considerations, i.e. the challenge to the medical diagnosis, but then also the non-medical factors in terms of the plan the family prevents and their ability and willingness to offset any of the expected excessive demands. The medical officer is then supposed to forward a new opinion back to the immigration officer or the visa officer, who then assesses whether that opinion is reasonable and makes their own finding. Now, in terms of the timeline for all of this, from the medical opinion to the furtherance is actually relatively quick, and it takes as long as it is to get appointments and see these specialists and experts. But what we found is that generally, when all of this paperwork, the expert opinions are waiting for the medical officer, this can easily take six months to 18 months for a medical officer to review it. There simply are not a large number of officers doing this task. Now, it then goes back to the immigration officer, who then could also take several months to be able to review the file before the procedural fairness letter was created. Once it's in the applicant's hands, they're usually given 30 or 60 days to respond. And it goes back to the medical officer. And what we found here is that it often takes in excess of one year, possibly up to two years, to get any sort of a decision or response back from the medical officer or the visa officer as to whether or not this mitigation plan, whether it's been accepted, whether they've been refused, and their family's just left waiting. So in total, we're talking about multiple years, almost um, any time there has been a medical furtherance. Is that fair to say? Or Yeah, I think you'd be looking at two years at the low end and upwards of four years to go through this entire process at, towards the high end. And then at the end of the day, there's a decision written, and the decision will contain the conclusion that the office, that the immigration officer has made about the admissibility. Is that right? Yes, it would. And then what recourse does someone have? Can they appeal that decision when, uh, if the decision is made that they are medically inadmissible? Well, it would depend on the class of application. So, for example, if you were seeking to sponsor in your parents or your grandparents, that decision would be appealable to the Immigration Appeal Division, where at that point you'd be able to put forward both a challenge to the legal to the medical opinion, a further mitigation plan, or also, again, humanitarian reasons to allow the appeal. Right. But on other classes of application, for example, if you were in the economic classes, your only recourse would be to the federal court in a judicial review. Right. And the judicial review, as we've discussed on a number of previous um, podcasts, is not a, it's not a de novo hearing in any way. It's a very, very much confined to uh, the, the administrative law um, standards in terms of what can be reviewed and whether or not the, the decision was sort of outside of all scope of reasonableness. Um, otherwise, uh, they can't consider new factors, new evidence. There's no um, equitable basis to make a decision on humanitarian and compassionate grounds. It's a very, very limited review, and a lot of deference is shown to that decision that was made by the immigration officer. That's exactly the case. Um, so, 
part of the reason that we convened this podcast today is because um, there has been some coverage in the media about this medical admissibility policy, which has been on the books um, for a very long time. Um, and the current immigration minister has made some public comments about um, trying to do a better job of balancing the interests of the Canadian healthcare system, which is being protected by this excess demand policy, and the kind of humanitarian commitment that, that Canada is making and, uh, you know, whether or not our selection policy is adequately assessing um, those cases and whether or not the rules should be as it has been for, for some time now. So, um Aaron and I have already um, reviewed the first, the result, the minutes of that first meeting that occurred at the Commons Committee um, on the uh, on the medical admissibility policy, and perhaps you can just say a little bit about about the contents and uh, some of your initial thoughts about it. Yeah, it was actually quite an interesting meeting for the first meeting. Um, with several members of the department there to answer questions of the committee members, and what it seemed that a lot of the members were interested in is understanding both who was excluded and why, but also truly understanding what makes up what we consider this excessive demand threshold. How do we come to the number over which one person would be considered an excessive demand, and if you're under that number, other people would not be considered an excessive demand. And around this entire idea that if one family member was found to be medically inadmissible, this could in fact lead to the entire family being refused. So there was a lot of questions being asked about how we're balancing this, whether a cost-benefit analysis should be introduced. For example, should we look at what benefits this immigrant or this immigrant family are bringing to Canada as opposed to what they might cost the system? Right. So it's sort of, I felt with the minutes of this first meeting, there was really no engagement, no conversation on the moral issue because as the um, the bureaucrats who were there um, testifying were saying that they're not the ones that are forming the rationale for the policy, that that has to come from higher up. This was really about what the law says and how it's being applied and they were answering questions about that. So I think it will be very interesting, first of all, just to see how that moral conversation unfolds, um, because um, there was some conversation about the fact that the minister himself will at some point be appearing um, um, in these meetings and would then be wanting to be engaging on 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 this kind of more um, systemic issue in terms of the policy approach to this as a whole. Um, but that really, at this stage, the focus was on what are we doing are there issues with how that's being done and just a lot of questions around around how that's that's functioning. Um, but maybe you can um, explain a little bit about what did come forward through that testimony about what their process is for actually setting these thresholds and what some of the considerations are there. Well, I mean, the excessive demand threshold is a number that's generated each year. Right now, in 2017, it's considered $6,655. And what this is supposed to be is the average public spending on health and social services per capita in Canada. And what came out of this is that $6,299 of that amount was a number generated by the Canadian Institute for Health Information. 
And this is the spending on medical services in Canada. And this is done annually, is that annually, right? Annually, yeah. yeah. Okay. And so the, the department just adopts this number for the medical component of excessive demand. What's a lot harder to calculate is how do we cal- um, assess spending for social services? Right. And social services have to only be those services that are captured in our regulations. And that covers things such as public education, vocational therapies, and other sorts of, uh, or occupational therapy, and so forth. Right. Now, what came out of the committee meeting was that this number was based upon a 2004 baseline study. Right. Where they made inquiries with Health Canada, Statistics Canada, and other agencies to come up with this number. And each year since 2004, they've adjusted this number on the basis of inflation. And they did clarify they meant social services or health inflation as a specific number. And as of today in 2017, they put the number at $356. So the average spending by the public government, well, governments on social services in Canada. But there's a huge amount of misinformation or lack of information in terms of what comes up with that number. And I think that's a lot of the committee members were concerned about. Right. What did the 2004 study actually consider? Right. And I mean, for myself, I wonder if raising the number by the rate of inflation each year, even if it's a targeted inflation to health inflation, is an accurate way to say how much a service costs. Of course, a professional is able to raise their service costs in excess of the rate of inflation. Right. And so I don't know that this number over 13 years has kept pace with actual costs. Especially considering new measures that are um, being put into place in our education scheme and um, and other sorts of therapeutic settings to, um, to address um, issues that face a lot of Canadians and permanent residents. That might be a really inaccurate number given the change... Um, in approach over 13 years. Yeah, and I mean, uh, the Conference Board of Canada had put forward another number, and what they put forward was the annual cost should actually be $1,105 rather than 356 Okay. And I mean, there are some questions of whether or not we're comparing apples and apples, or if the Conference Board of Canada's number for social services is a little bit different or possibly includes more range of services than what the regulations for excessive demand. Right. And I'm hoping that's actually what comes out of the study is a lot more clarity on these numbers. Right. Understood. But, I mean, going back to basics, the idea here is that there's this set number, this 6,655, if I've got that number right, Mm -hmm. per year, and that when the medical um, officer's opinion comes out, if they have estimated that the average cost for any single member of that family goes above that 6655 per year over a five-year period, then that's when the finding would be made that the person is potentially inadmissible to Canada on excess demand grounds. Exactly. I mean, one of the comments of a committee member was, if we have a family of five people, and only one of them has a condition that could potentially cause excessive demand, why don't we average excessive demand over the entire family? As a family of five, they might actually cost less than the average family of five people in Canada. Right. Why are we looking at this as an individual number? Yes. I've also had cases where 
the life expectancy of the person involved was much less than the five years that they look at. So um, we had to, for the applicant, make the unenviable argument of saying, you've assessed my cost over five years, but you know, I'm likely to die within one. So um, just spread that costing out and, um, you know, because they are looking at it as that number times five and are you going to meet that? And so um, there's some... Well, on another slightly less morbid scale, Mm. we have where children need special education, but by the time they're being assessed, they're already in their final years of education. Right. So for example, I worked with a family where the child had profound hearing loss. Right. So at this point, they were in grade 11. Well, over five years, all they would need was two years Mm. of special education. And there's some question about whether the cost of two years of education is actually excessive, averaged over the five years. Yeah. I, I sometimes, when I'm working with a client who's got an admissibility allegation like this on excess demand, one of the questions is with respect to this mitigation plan, what can they actually do to mitigate um, cost? And um, the way that that tends to work is often what the department will do is ask the applicant to sign it's called a declaration of ability and intent. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. And, uh, but again, how does one, how, you know, I'm just interested in your experience about how you've kind of put together these arguments. Is it strictly a, do you have that amount of money? Because um, the concern for me is always that um, just because somebody might have that dollar value and can say that they can pay for it, that doesn't necessarily guarantee that they're going to be able to overcome the admissibility allegation. Yeah, I mean, and to be clear, of course, we cannot, no matter how much money we have, pay for medical services right. in Canada. Exactly. So we really are focusing on social services, and then, of course, also on pharmaceuticals, which we can pay for privately. Right. But it is really challenging with schools, too, because even, you know, people will say, well, what about I just send them to private schools? But most private schools, at least in British Columbia, are still publicly funded to some extent, and so... Um, it's not a full fix. And I mean, I think you've just said the exact thing, schools in British Columbia. And that's part of it is that in any plan, you have to tailor it directly to the province of intended destination. Right. So, for example, Alberta has a fantastic homeschooling system that's set up in conjunction with the province. Right. And even in British Columbia, homeschool can be an option or you can actually elect to place them in the school system for one class here or one class there, and therefore on those individual classes, it might cost the provincial government a certain amount, but it would not be excessive. But going back even, I mean, because what you've said just kind of um, twigged for me is that when the government puts together the cost assessment, it's, it's based on very generalized information. It's based on like national averages. And then there's even this, um, confusion about what the social service component even consists of and whether it's still an accurate number given that it was from 2004 um, all of this sort of thing it's generic information coming at the applicant and very specific information that has to go back and it sometimes just feels to me like there's a bit of a discord in terms of the evidence being presented on either side well I mean hopefully by this point we're getting a more individualized medical opinion. The Federal Court of Appeal in a case called SAPRU in 2011 was abundantly clear that you can't just throw any possible right. service that the individual, because of their condition, would require 
It's not this person has an intellectual disability, therefore this package of 10 services are always included. We have to, or the medical officer is supposed to be saying, individualized, this particular person is, for example, 24 years old. Yes. So therefore, a certain package of the services are no longer applicable. Yes. They no longer are going to have special education, but they could still have vocational training. They yeah. could, the family still could require respite care. And it is supposed to be ideally individualized coming to the applicant. So then I'm going to ask you, are you finding that you are getting these individualized assessments in the fairness letters, or um, are you still finding them to be quite generic? Because I'll tell you straight up, I find them still very generic. And uh, it does also feel like from the perspective, I asked a question, now I'm answering. <laughs> but um, from the, it, it feels sometimes like the, the um, it's a challenge for an applicant to prove that they won't need something or that they won't use something. It's kind of, it already, there's an imbalance there in trying to establish, okay, so yes, there is this service required, but I won't use it, and here's why I won't use it. It kind of, it puts them at a disadvantage, I find, in, try, in terms of trying to prove the case. Whereas um, it does feel like it's easier to just say, well, this is possible, so you might actually require this. So now I'm going to ask the actual question again to you. Do you find <laughs> that you're getting a more individuated kind of um, an assessment of what the costs are? I don't. And I would first say that I actually meant the Supreme Court's decision in Hillowitz right. rather than Saffron. But to step back to that... <laughs> Um, no. Because that was a while back now. Like, when was the Hillowitz decision 2005. Made? Right, okay, so... Um, yeah, I'm sorry, Sapper was discussing where the responsibilities between the medical officer and the visa officer right. ended, because there was this idea that visa officers were just rubber stamping whatever the medical officer said, regardless of how much or as little as they said. But I think Sapper... Um, clarified that there is still, that, that the visa officer, the immigration officer, is not bound by the decision of the medical officer and needs to be um, making a reasoned assessment. Um, is that right? Very much so, okay. yeah. Which is why the medical officer still actually has to assess all of the evidence. Right. And this comes back to what you were asking in terms of what evidence or how much should the applicants be able to respond to it. And it's true, I mean, what they have to provide is what's been called a cogent plan, right. which is a very detailed, nuanced plan. It's not enough to say, I will send my child to private school, or I will homeschool them. Yes. It's which private school? Yes. Does that private school have an opening for your child? Does the private school potentially have the capacity to accept a child with your exact conditions in that age group at that time? Yeah. Can your Are they subsidized by the provincial government, right? Very much so. Yeah. And in terms of homeschooling, it's not enough to say point blank, I will homeschool no. my child. It's, well, what is your plan for meeting academic benchmarks in that particular province yeah. if your child's going through a full academic stream? And the other thing that I spend a lot of time and attention on is why am I homeschooling? Because if the department gets the impression that you're saying you're going to do these things because you're trying to combat the medical admissibility finding. Um, that won't be nearly as compelling. If you can explain, for example, that a child with an intellectual disability, that actually homeschooling is the best option for this child because to put them in the public school system, there would also be additional like language issues if they don't speak English as a first language and that that would not be for the child's best interest, that being at home where they can get education in their, 
in their native language might be preferable. So things like that, I think, to really provide a very fulsome, not just that you will do it, but why you will do it. And I think even added to that, it's the whole idea of socialization as well. I right. mean, if you're bringing your child over and they're going to sit in their home, even if they're getting the top quality of education, it's a question of what are we going to still do for this child to introduce right. them to the Canadian oh, That's a very school. good point, too. Yes. Possibly extracurricular activities, having music lessons, for example, outside of the home, right. engaging in community sports could be a way to sort of pick up the physical education or more the arts part of the curriculum. That your plan is not going to deprive them, but rather provide all the same opportunities, but in a way that's going to meet all of their diverse needs. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But it's about having as many possibilities covered as possible to make the life and the plan for this family not only uh, applicable, but feasible and even desirable. Right. One of the things that... um, uh, that I also experience when trying to advocate for a client in this sort of situation is that, especially when you're dealing with medical issues, it's very tough to get a doctor who will be like, well, this is what these things would cost here in Canada, because a lot, it feels like a lot of practitioners are fairly removed from that actual costing process because of the fact that we have, a, you know, a, a public health system. So, um, you know, they'll be asking the the best way to prove, for example, that a person won't be in excessive demand is to say, well, we think that this um, this treatment that you've suggested as being possible isn't likely to be required. But that really the best evidence of that is having an expert who can talk about what the best treatment is and what the cost of that treatment would be. And I don't know if you also find that it is a challenge to actually adduce that kind of evidence on behalf of an applicant. Well, and then there's the question of where they are in the world. Exactly. And I mean, certain medical treatments might not be as readily available in the country where that person is, so it's not even necessarily contemplated by a doctor or specialist there when thinking about the plan available. Yes. But one option, which a lot of doctors seem to be able to facilitate, is, for example, when pharmaceutical drugs or prescription medications are the issue, you might be able to switch to a generic. Yes. And so, or they could change the frequency or dosage requirements. So there are things like that that I've worked with doctors to yes. switch over in advance. So by the time that we're looking at the plan, they're already stable and on a reduced dosage or generic application. Yes. Well, this has been a real issue for the, the um, community of applicants who are facing these kinds of um, allegations that are being treated for HIV uh, with the retroviral treatment is because a lot of those patents that Canada has signed up for are for a much, much more expensive version of that than what they would be able to produce if it was going generic. And so some of those patents are expiring, but some of them are still there. And it's really just a matter of the fact that our country is locked into a bad deal on this particular drug that they don't have access to that. But ultimately, that patent will run out and then presumably there'll be a generic version um, for that medication as there are for some of the ARV treatments now available. So Yeah, and I mean there's fairly good studies about how much medications typically reduce in price once a generic comes onto the market. Mm-hmm. And we can even look at comparable other markets where that generic is already exactly available. That's right. So I mean if we're talking about over a five year period and the patent runs out in the middle, yes. I think we could put together fairly good evidence to show that in the second half 
the person's no longer going to be excessive demand and in fact could be substantially below the threshold. And that always takes me back to the like the public policy piece of it. If the rationale here is to protect our healthcare system and yet there are these agreements that Canada might have entered into that's actually artificially in a way inflating the cost because a better, more cost-effective treatment is available elsewhere in the world and will become available in Canada at some later point, perhaps. Um, it does really kind of, it feels very, um, you know, what I've said in, in arguments in past is that, like, to pass along that costing to the actual person and to lose that person who was already decided to be, an like, an eligible immigrant because of the fact that there's going to be that cost there temporarily, um, it really feels challenging from a moral perspective. I think you're definitely right. And I mean, and if somebody didn't have somebody like you advocating for them, how would a regular applicant get into a discussion about patent expiries yes. and the cost of generic medications? It's getting opinions from medical experts. Like this can be, a, in addition to the timing that we've spoken of, it can be a very, very costly process. And even just knowing where to turn. It's, yeah. it's beyond me sometimes to find the right specialist or to point out the right person that somebody should be going to. That's right. Let alone an applicant, even one who is suffering with a particular condition. Yeah. And again, I think I do want to take it back to that that standpoint. Like, are we okay with the idea that because you have a child who has a developmental disability, that we are going to say to that entire family, almost regardless of what they have done and what they have contributed in Canada, that they are an undesirable immigrant? I think that's really the bottom line that I think this committee is hopefully going to grapple with and uh, and discuss. But I think it's a very interesting interesting debate and I, I, I like to see that this that the debate is actually happening right out there in the open and hopefully the public is going to have some interest in this as well. No, I definitely think that's the case. And I mean you heard it again and again by committee members sort of repeating the question in different ways, saying, so we're saying just if this one child yes. is an admissible whole family. So the parents who we've already found eligible, we want them here. Yes. None of them are okay. That's right. Or I think somebody gave an example of a story that had been in the media where a professor from York University in Toronto had been working as a professor in Canada and yet has been denied because her child is inadmissible to Canada. Mm. Yeah, I'm actually often consulted by people outside of the country who are thinking about immigrating and they want some advice on this particular issue. And for a lot of people... Um, parents in particular, I find, the idea of subjecting their family to this kind of um, sort of, it's drama, really. I mean, if you're a family of four and there's one child who might scupper the immigration prospects of the entire family, that's a lot to, it's a lot to put on that family to kind of have to figure out where they go from there. Um, And, you know, it's not just a matter of what that child knows. It's just that this is going to be going on potentially for years and years, that if the parent decides to come up and take that job, they might end up having to explain to their family why they're moving back five years later because it didn't it didn't pan out. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that those kinds of challenges are working as a deterrent for some of even the highest, you know, most brilliant minds that we would think that we wanted to attract and also just it's sort of to me um, it's not looking at the positive impact that even that child who is the reason for the negative allegation the contribution that they will make to the overall community here in Canada it's a it's a very it's a complex debate well it's troubling too in terms of who it is that we are excluding 
Yes. I mean, as you say, what's the contribution this child is possibly going to make to the fabric of Canada? Right. And it's one of the reasons that um, so many different disability groups have written into Parliament and have written in already to contribute to the committee, because the very nature that certain disabilities should be, in their words, discriminated against, right. both in terms of the process they have to go through, but also that these groups or these individuals are somehow not worthy of entry into Canada, right. has really triggered this debate and what it is that we want yes, to exactly. make up Canadian society. And I know that um, that throughout the this meeting, it was repeated that there's no one condition that means a refusal and that there is discretion to consider all of these other factors in a humanitarian and compassionate type of assessment or in the mitigation plan. But I think that, uh, and, and also there was some mention of the fact that, you know, that this policy has actually withstood constitutional scrutiny in the courts in the past. However, I don't think any of that takes away from the shaming experience for a person who's gone through this process and is told at the end of the day that you're too expensive for us in spite of your other attributes, that this is a decision that Canada has made. I know that this was, for me, certainly one of the issues that meant I wanted to go into immigration law from law school because that concept really did, I found that very jarring. Um, I'm sure it's the same with you. Yeah, and I mean, I think medical admissibility, unlike some of the other admissibilities that we might work with, is particularly compelling because it's through no fault of the individual or the family. Mm. We're talking about something that is innate to the person. Yes. And because of this innate characteristic, yes. they're not being admitted to Canada. Yeah, exactly. And I've there's oftentimes it's cases where the admissibility has shown up that they weren't even diagnosed until well after they had come here in Canada. It could theoretically have even been that it was because of an accident that occurred in Canada while they were here, you know. And, and again, it's this, the notion of um, fighting against an admissibility where there's absolutely no culpability and no ability to change these, in, these um, immutable, um, sometimes, factors. That's exactly the case. And yeah. It's one of the reasons I do like this area and working with the families that... Yes, exactly. It's there's no one uh, one picture of what a Canadian is going to look like, and uh, I think both of us would like to see that uh, it's a more fulsome approach to to what that means. And uh, anyways, we will continue to follow this issue and uh, perhaps uh, revisit the question um, again once we actually have a report from the committee, which hopefully we will. Um, both of us noted that. Much of what was discussed in this initial meeting was all the different statistics that all of the different members of the committee wanted to see. And uh, based on our um, review of that, we think that it's going to be quite a bit of time before they're able to even proceed because they wanted this information before they did so. So I don't think it's going to happen fast, but I'm really personally, I'm very, very glad to see that the discussion has started. Thank you very much for joining us, Erin. Uh, it was really a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. Okay.